Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 24, 2016 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is courage. And tonight I am thrilled that we have the extra pleasure of having Joe Richmond hosting for us tonight. He is the the founder, it's founder and something else, of Radio Diaries, which you hear on NPR, and, um, and This American Life, and This American Life, and I want to say The American Experience. Did I make that up? Okay. And, and there's another one in there, and, um, you know, I could go on and on about the Peabody Awards and all the glorious things he's done, but the main thing is that he's passionate about this work, and if you have not heard Radio Diaries go to your podcast and, and listen to them right there, easy access, and they're wonderful. It is, it is a treasure. It is a treasure. So without further ado, we're going to get Joe up here and uh, start this puppy rolling. Joe Richmond. Woo! Hey, everybody. Um, it is great to be here. I've been part of the Mosquito every year since, since, they, since Caitlin and Vanessa started, and it's just a great thing that's happening here. Um, so I'm happy to be part of it. I'm happy my mom's in the audience, too. So. Um, so Caitlin asked me to start by um, start some sort of introduction, and I thought I would offer um, two theories on courage. And I'm, the first theory is, so as Caitlin said, um, we do these documentaries for NPR, we're best known for diaries, where we give people tape recorders and we work with them for a long period of time to do stories about their lives. And so I'm very familiar with the idea of, you know, just how much incredibly mundane, boring tape can be recorded in a person's life that then you have to think, well, how does this, how can this be edited and crafted into something that somewhat resembles a story? Um, and so it's something I'm very interested in. It's like, what are the, what are the, you know, what makes a story? And people say about these diarists, they often say, well, you know, such courageous people. And they are. They're taking a tape recorder and talking about their lives. And, and um, sometimes they're going through very courageous things. But it's funny because I don't think of them, you know, that's not why I choose them. In fact, the opposite. You know, I think a good character is often someone not really courageous, but, you know, um, fearful and flawed and complex and you know human frailty and someone that we relate to someone someone like us and those are often the characters we look for and so what makes that person become this courageous person and that's that's the story part and so I was thinking about this word courage and um, and you know it's it's different from other words because courage doesn't exist in a vacuum right it's, it's um, you need to be courageous about something. And you know, there are other words, like, like if you can be happy, and okay, maybe you're happy for a reason, but you can also just be happy. You can also just be sad. And you, know, you can be fearful about something, you can just be fearful or, or hungry. We all know why we're hungry. But, um, but courage needs a cause, right? And so that makes us curious about, well, what came before? Like why, you know, how, how did you get to courage? So that, leads me to my first theory, which is courage may be the only word in the English language that has its own built-in narrative arc. And as evidence of that tonight, I think you will see the stories tonight will support theory number one. Theory number two, and this one, this theory isn't mine, 
but um, this comes from an article I read in The Atlantic this year, which I was obsessed about. It was a study from a couple years ago, which is about uh, the flip side of courage, the opposite of courage, um, which is fear, right? And fear is a powerful force. I'm familiar with it in our um, it's an engine of our economy and of our political <laughs> election season. Um, and many billions of dollars are spent in trying to manage fear and anxiety through, you know, pills or books or therapy, shopping. Um, and so, but all that money, it's actually, it turns out that there are actually just three simple words that are more effective than any of that to manage fear. And would you like to know what those words are? Okay, I'll tell you in a moment. Um, <laughs> but first, I want to just explain the science behind this. Because, you know, when people think about fear and anxiety, they think about, okay, I gotta relax, I gotta get calm. And that's wrong. You know, it's hard to go from fear and anxiety to, to kind of like calm. What it's easy to do is to go from fear and anxiety to excitement. You know, there's similar reactions. It's like the, the arousal emotions, you know, the heart beats and the cortisol surges and, you know, the body is ready and all that. So you gotta throw out the idea of getting calm and you just think, you know, one is a, is a um, the only difference is that one is a negative reaction and focuses on how things will go badly and the other focuses on how things will go well. So it's easier to go from a charged up negative reaction to a charged up positive reaction. So how did they study this? This is the interesting part. Um, they had participants sing um, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. <laughs> it's, it, I know it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. And before they sang, they asked people to first either do nothing or say, I'm anxious, or say, I am excited. Those words, I am excited. And guess who sang the best? And they did this with a speech test and a math test. And the whole, um, the cognitive trick behind this is called um, anxiety reappraisal. It's like mental jujitsu. And the whole idea is to go from a opportunity, from a threat mindset to an opportunity mindset. So I say that because we're gonna do our own little experiment right now, <laughs> if you will. And this is sounding like a self-help evening. It's not what you came for, but. Uh, um, so here's what you do. Think about something that you're really anxious about. Something you have to do tomorrow. Um, or maybe you came this evening, your friend brought you here and you thought it was gonna be like a lecture on entomology or something. <laughs> um, think about something you're anxious about and when I count to three, just think to yourself, I am excited. Okay, ready? One, two, three. How'd that feel? Yeah? Okay, let's try it again together because here's what I really want to do. The whole purpose of this is to give a little gift to the people who are about to tell stories tonight because there are 10 of you, 10 of you, right, who are about to get up here and maybe a little bit shy, maybe a little bit scared, maybe a little bit fearful, and let's give them a little shot of courage by telling them how we feel about listening to their story. So on the count of three, let's say loudly and with feeling those three words. You ready? One, two, three. I am excited. That's great to hear. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's have our first story then. <laughs> okay, our first storyteller tonight is Chloe. Last 
Wednesday, I went on a three-day hike with my dad in New Hampshire. Uh, the biggest part was going up Mount Washington. And um, on our third night, we uh, stayed at a little hut called Mizpah Hut, Mizpah Spring Hut. And um, yeah, it was a very long hike because every time we saw, we thought we saw the end, there was a ton more to go. So uh, yeah, we finally got to the lodge and we were exhausted. And um, we get there and the woman at the front desk says, yeah, uh, I hope you're okay, but, uh, if, but you're gonna be sharing uh, your lodge, well, your little room, with uh, a ton of Boy Scouts. <laughs> and I'm not in my right mind, I'm exhausted. I'm about to take a three day long nap. And my dad looks at me, are you okay with it? And I'm like, sure, whatever. And um, yeah, my dad and I are reading. Uh, the Boy Scouts haven't come yet, so we're alone in this room. Uh, and it's like a ton of bunks. And um, we hear this big noise. And it's like a ton of pe like elephants just stomping down the hallway. And my dad says, here they come. And they come in. We don't get acknowledged at all, and I'm thinking, well, this isn't so bad. And, um, and uh, like five minutes later, their scout leader, a middle-aged man who is very nice, says, oh, hi, I didn't even notice you. And I'm thinking, uh, thanks. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm polite, I, I shake his hand. And uh, thinking back on it, I think that the part when I was most courageous wasn't hiking up Mount Washington, or Mount Eisenhower, or Mount Pierce, or Mount Monroe. It was sharing, deciding to share that room with those Boy Scouts. <laughs> Grace M. Um, I grew up in Portugal in an orphanage. It was a good thing. And um, one Sunday afternoon, um, a, uh, we're sitting outside with some of our, uh, the girls. And the nun came, and um, she sat down, and she started to tell us a story. Not really a story as a storytelling, more of a story of confessing something. And she said that she was just at a cafe in the center of the city. She went to meet with a friend and um, another nun also. And they sat down and they ordered ice cream. And um, as they sat down, the ice cream came and uh, next thing you know, they noticed there was a little girl in front of them uh, filthy, dirty, begging. And um, they looked at each other and they decided to pretend that this little girl wasn't there. After all, she was just a beggar. And uh, as they started to eat the ice cream, they were very glad that the waiter came and uh, shooshed the girl away. And um, as they, uh, she continued to eat the ice cream, she started to not feel so wonderful about eating the ice cream and got to the point where she stopped. And uh, I was a little surprised because 
a little surprised and not so surprised. I was a little surprised because she was the cool nun. She was the one who sang songs and played the guitar, and she almost looked like a hippie kind of nun. So I was, I, it was a little upsetting from that. But on the other hand, being from Portugal, status is a big thing. And when you help a helpless person, you are somewhat part of that. And uh, you don't want to be that. And so you just don't help the poor because the poor helps the poor. And it's, it's a little yuck to do that. Anyways, a few short years go by and I get kicked out of the orphanage. And uh, three, year, three years of hell begins for me. Um, I end up working as a maid in a town that was very wealthy. And of course I tried to uh, be something that I was not. I wanted to be wealthy. I didn't want to be that low life, that second class citizen. And so all the money that I made, I end up uh, buying good clothes, nice clothes, so I could show off a little bit, be, to be, be a little cool, be like everybody else. And so I'm 16 years old, and one day I sit at a cafe, a cafe where everybody show, where everybody knows your name, all the friends come, and any minute of the day, especially later in the afternoon, at night, all the friends show up. And uh, one day I decided to have lunch, and I sat at the cafe, and I sat down, and I put my bag on a chair next to me, and I looked up, and there's two little kids, and they are filthy, and they have their hands out. And I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I wish they wouldn't be here. I, because this would be too embarrassed being caught giving money to these little kids by my friends. After all, I told them I wasn't a maid. I was living with my uncle and my aunt, because to live there, you either very low life or you're very good life. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe the waiter will come, and maybe I'll shush them away. But at the same time, I, I remember that little girl with the ice cream, and I didn't want to do that either. And uh, I just kept thinking, somebody's going to show up. My friends are going to show up, and they're going to be sitting down. There was two little kids like this, and they were filthy. And I picked up my pocketbook from, my, from the chair next to me, and I said, why don't you guys have lunch with me? And they sat down, and the waiter came, and they said, what are you guys doing here? Get out of the way. Go shoot them the way. And I said, no, I invite them for lunch. And I started to ask questions. Where do you live? Why do you beg? Where's your dad? Why is your mom here? And we started to talk why they live, where they live, and why they begged all the time. And the thought that my friends could see them, see me sitting there, it actually started to not bother me. And I thought, this is actually pretty cool. I think I'm growing up. <laughs> <laughs> and the nun, I did something at 16 that the nun could not do at her age, especially nuns. They, that's what they're supposed to do. They are supposed to help others. And so, Today, every time I see, especially children begging, I always think of that ice cream girl. And I do do the best that I can. I do the best to help out. Thank you. Our next storyteller, ladies and gentlemen, Melissa Starr Win Winnip, is that right? Weinrup?
wow, it's so exciting to be here. <laughs> but sometimes you're not sure whether it's courage or sheer stupidity, right? <laughs> Several years ago, my husband and I went through our, our uh, list, you know, all the things that you want to do. What's that list called? Your bucket list, right? And the only thing we hadn't done was to raft down the Colorado River. And we were 70 years old at this time. And it seemed like if we were going to do it, this was the time. There was no room on the trip until the very last minute, like two weeks before the trip, they called us and said, we have two openings. And we said, yay, we're going to do this. It's so exciting. But we need to know that we're not going to be the only couple on the trip. We're not going to be the oldest people on the trip. And that there's not going to be a family grouping that's going to basically drive what happens on the trip. Oh, no, absolutely not. Lots of couples, lots of older people, no family groupings, and you know where this is going, right? <laughs> so we arrive in Flagstaff. We arrive at the boat. We have our life jackets on. It is 105 degrees. We look around at the people on our trip, on our raft, and we are the only older couple. <laughs> there is a younger couple, maybe 50, and then there is a family grouping with four young, rambunctious teenagers who want to do everything. Now, we were assured that the side trips would be geared to our abilities, but the ability of myself and my husband were very different than the ability of 17-year-olds. Right. So as they were scattering up the side of the cliffs, we were sitting at the bottom schwitzing. <laughs> now, I just want to tell you how hot it was. It was so hot at the bottom of the canyon that at night, the only way to fall asleep was to take your sheets, take them to the river, soak them, put them on top of you, and pray that you fell asleep before they dried up. <laughs> there was a particular way of keeping us cool on the river, which was called the bucket. And this was not the bucket list. This was actual buckets. The leaders of the trip would get buckets. We would be sitting along the side, and they would dip them and toss them. And we would get refreshed. My husband didn't think this was such a fun thing, but I actually liked it. <laughs> My husband actually didn't think this was a great trip to begin with. He wasn't so happy on the river. I actually liked being on the river, and I liked camping. But we, we managed to, you know, keep going. There was no turning back. You can't go back once you're on an eight-day trip. There is no turning back. There is climbing up a mountain if you want really to get out about halfway. But we were not going to do that. Our courage was not very evident. We were pretty scared. We were pretty nervous. We were sometimes having fun, 
we were sometimes really enjoying the amazing beauty of being in the Grand Canyon and of being in caves, remembering Paul Winter's music that he made at the Grand Canyon, hearing people singing from our trip. It was, it was amazing. It was truly amazing. But I have to say, we were not big on the courage part. <laughs> Until the very last day, when we decided we were going to do one of those side trips. And Joel and I climbed up the side of a sheer cliff. Did I tell you that my husband has fear of falling, fear of heights, fear of being out of control? <laughs> we are clinging clinging, I mean clinging to the side of the cliff, and one foot like this, you know, over, over, over. We did make it to the top. We made it to the bottom. And I have to say that although I think that trip was the stupidest thing we've ever done, <laughs> that moment of getting to the bottom and having climbed that cliff was the most courageous thing we've ever done. Thank you. It's not my cousin, but it's Diane Green. <gasps> I'm so excited. I'm not even anxious at all. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so this took place in 1964. I had just lived through, barely, the heartbreak of losing my first love of my life, she and um, managed to live through that. But I knew, it was 1964, I lived in New York, and I said, I've just got to find a lesbian somewhere. I just have to. <laughs> and I knew that that was in Greenwich Village. And I knew that because of nice little pulp paperbacks that said, Twilight Lesbo Lovers, or <laughs> they live between the sexes. And I knew they were there in Greenwich Village. Now, I lived in Westchester, which was a train ride from Greenwich Village, or New York. And I need an excuse to give my mother why I would be staying out that late and going down to the city, staying overnight, really, because I had some friends from Ann Arbor that were staying at the Waldorf Astoria. That gave me my excuse for my mom. So off I went, and I met my friends. And after showing them around a little bit, I said, look, I have to go meet uh, a friend from camp, so I'm going to say goodbye, and I'll see you back at the hotel. And I said, I'll call before I come back. And so on a warm June afternoon, probably about 5 o'clock, I took the subway down to West 4th Street, got out, and started walking. Now, I knew that there was some lesbian bar in Greenwich Village because some years before, a camp counselor had met a bunch of us over Christmas and had shown us a lesbian bar. So I knew it was there. <laughs> How she knew about it, we don't know. But so I started walking, and I'm walking, and I'm walking. And again, this is 1964, I'm 19 years old. You couldn't even ask a cab driver where a lesbian, you weren't gonna do it. So I'm walking, and I'm walking, and it's so hot, and I've got loafers on with no socks, and I'm just, it's just too hot, and it's not gonna happen, I'm not, it's not gonna happen. And then there it was, the sea colony. And I recognized that from that time with the counselor. All right, so I had found the bar, now I was going to have to walk in. So I steeled myself, and I walked in. It was very cool. I was the only one there. And this tough-looking 
bartender says, what do you have? I had never ordered a drink in a bar before, but I had watched Westerns. <laughs> and so what came out was, I'll have a bourbon on the rocks. <laughs> Which is definitely not, you don't want that as your first drink. And I hadn't eaten all day, all right. So I'm very cool, like I do this every day. I'm sitting there at the bar all alone, and this tall woman comes in, older woman, probably 30, with a lot of red hair, and she sits down right next to me. Oh, P.S., I just want you to remember, my last name was Green. It's important to the story, all right. So she sits down next to me, I'm trying to be as cool as can be, and she looks at me and she said, my, you're green. And I couldn't understand how this woman knew my last name. I mean, that's how already bourboned I was. So we're sitting there, and, and I have no idea, no idea what we're talking about, but we're talking, and I'm really trying to hold my own, you know, really trying to hold my own. And I guess I did, because after about an hour, she said, look, the bar's not going to get crowded till about 10. Come, we'll take a cruise around the village in my convertible. So there I am, kind of drunk, riding around with a grown-up lesbian in her convertible in Greenwich Village, just feeling great. <laughs> so we go back to the bar about 10 o'clock, and now, you know, I'm so cool, I, I'll have a bourbon on the rocks, and, and I'm looking around like this is no big deal, like I do it every day, and, uh, and this, this, this beautiful young woman comes up to me and takes my hand and leads me out to the dance floor, and starts to run her hands up my side, and I'm so happy, this is so great. I mean, I've, I've met a lesbian, I've met lesbians, I'm in a bar and everything. Oh, the woman, the redhead, her name was Roberta. Then Roberta comes running up to me, and she says, there's a raid, we gotta get out of here. And the reason was that you were not allowed to dance together. You could be at the bar and you could drink, but you were not allowed to dance together in 1964 in Greenwich Village. So right before I left, the, the girl's name was Eva, and right before I left, she slips me her phone number, and Roberta says, my, you work fast. So, <laughs> so, so we leave, and I'm so excited. Mission accomplished. This is great. So uh, I go to call my friends at the Waldorf to, to, you know, to pay phone to say, uh, I'm ready to come back now, but they didn't answer. They weren't home yet. Now what I was going to do, I mean, I couldn't go there. Roberta said, Come on over to my place and you can call from there. All right. So now I go and I'm at her house. And, and oh, quick. All right. So, all right. So we're sitting on the couch and I'm thinking, am I supposed to do something? I don't know. I don't know what to do. I, I was so boring. I was just talking my head off. And finally, she said, Look, I'm going to bed. Here's a pillow. Here's a blanket. Don't answer the phone in the morning. And thank God I called one more time. My friends were home and I said, Thank you. Thank you, Roberta. Great. I'm leaving. And I just thought, wow, mission accomplished. I did it. Okay, next storyteller is Jack Knees. What would you do? What would you do is a TV reality show I'm sure most of you know about. It puts ordinary people in stressful situations which may or may not suggest an intervention. 
And we sit there and we watch this program wondering, what would I do? I had that opportunity. My ex-wife and I were visiting my parents in Concord, New Hampshire. It was a beautiful summer day, long hours of light. We had dinner, good conversation, and we were heading back to our motel. It was just getting dusk. Headlights were coming on, streetlights were coming on, and I noticed two men running on the sidewalk on the opposite side of the street in the same direction I was going. And behind them, lagging behind, but running hard, was a young woman. And I thought, teenage kids fooling around. And they ran across the street in front of me, the two guys. There were two cars in front of me. They almost got hit. They stopped traffic and continued running. The woman crossed the street behind my car, and this trio was running full tilt in the direction of the state prison. The state prison also had a halfway house on the grounds but outside the walls. As we accelerated, my headlights picked up the back of the first gentleman who was running and his t-shirt was stained with sweat and I said, boy, that guy has been working hard. But as we pulled up alongside the second man, Sharon turned to me and said, he's got a knife, it's a big knife. It was then that I realized that wasn't sweat on the first man's back, it was blood. As Sharon was calling 911, I was rolling down the window and I pulled up alongside the first gentleman and I said, are you hurt? And he said, I've been stabbed. And I said, get in the car. And he jumped in the back seat and I said, where's the nearest hospital? And he said, take me to the halfway house. Sharon was directing the 911 operator to send the ambulance to the halfway house. And I turned to the gentleman and I said, what happened? He said, my friends and I were coming back from an AA meeting at the church. We stopped at the convenience store. When we came out, I was attacked. By then, we were at the halfway house. I half dragged, half carried him inside, and it became pandemonium. Uh, people in there became hysterical. Uh, there was, unfortunately, at that time, there was no prison presence, no guard there. I got somebody's attention, we got him seated in a chair, two of us got towels and got pressure on his wounds which were on his chest, above his heart, and in his back. It seemed like an eternity before that ambulance showed up, but it did. And the gentleman was conscious all during this time, and he knew the person who had stabbed him and was repeating his name. The Paramedics did their job. They got him stabilized and they were taking him out in the gurney when he actually lost consciousness. Well, I had to find a sink. Uh, I washed up, I was covered with blood and I walked outside the door and it was like the apocalypse had happened. There were more flashing lights than I have ever seen before in my life. There were state police cars, there were city police cars, there was prison police cars, there were fire trucks in the ambulance. And there was a little group gathered around my car, which had the back door open. They were police officers, one taking pictures. I walked over and I looked inside and it looked like Freddy Krueger had been there. It was a mess. And the only thing I could think of is, if that doesn't come out of my new BMW leather seats, 
Will my insurance company ever believe this story? Well, I, I, the, the state policeman said to me, I really appreciate what you guys did. Um, he says, is there anything more we could do for you? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we're going back to Connecticut tomorrow, and if I get stopped for speeding, can I have them call you? <laughs> he smiled and handed me his card. That's not the end of the story, but that's the end of the courage part. And the courage part had nothing to do with Sharon or myself. What we did, we did out of instinct. The courage part is that young woman who was chasing a man with a knife, trying to stop him from killing her friend, that woman who ran across the back of my car and continued the chase, not knowing if he was going to turn on her. And he did. Because when I stopped to pick up the wounded man, the man with the knife broke off his chase and turned around. The woman was facing him. But he ran back to the convenience store, got on his bicycle, and went home and waited for the police. Now that young lady had courage in her heart. If anybody asked her, what would you do? She knew, and she did it. What would you have done? Thank you. And here we go. Jerry Riley. Well, before I tell you a story, I've got an invitation. I get three invitations. So first off, come back next Wednesday for the Pay at Senate. That's another, the last one. It's going to be great, I think. Uh, also, if you are in the Boston area on September 10th, we're doing an outdoor story slam in Newton. Uh, it's free. It's at the high bandstand. Uh, look at Newton Nomadic Theater, and you can get the information. But the last invitation is tonight. After the show tonight, we're inviting all of you to come down to the well down the street beside the Wicked Oyster. And uh, we were in there last week. They got a piano. It's very quiet on a Wednesday night. So we want as many of you to come on down. We have a great piano player. Uh, there'll be a guitar there. If you play piano or if you play guitar or you sing, come on down, and we'll uh, keep this party going after the stories are to end. So there you go. Um, so courage. That conjures up uh, other words. Uh, valor. Uh, you know, like nobility and honor and all these sort of lofty words. And uh, my story is not about any of those. My story is about the dark, seamy underside of courage. Courage's evil twin. Now about 15 years ago, uh, my wife was in a play she, she, in, down in uh, Boston South End. And one Saturday night, the cast and crew decided after the play they were all going to go out uh, for a pint somewhere. So we ended up at this bar at the base of Mission Hill. Big crowd of people, big long table, and we, had a, we were having a great night. And, you know, sometime over the course of the night, I was way down the end of the table. My wife was in the middle of the table. Everybody's talking to Gavin, and this guy comes over and starts talking to uh, my wife and some other people, and he's got this loud voice, and he's talking kind of like this, and realize he's a deaf guy, and he's got that deaf guy voice, and he's lip reading. 
by a weird coincidence, my wife and I had just taken sign language course, a course that had ended the month before. So we were like beginner sign language people. So Mari's signing with him, and she's all excited, and he's teaching her signs, and, and they're having a great old time. So, you know, he kind of joins the party. The night goes on. Slowly, the, the, everybody's dwindling. It ends up at the end of the night. It's me and Mari and the Steph guy. And, uh, and the bar's closing. And Mari has told him that we would give him a ride home. He lives up at the top of Mission Hill. So we're just getting ready to leave. And uh, all of a sudden, Mari gets up and tur turns her back to the deaf guy. He says, I, I think he just took my wallet. And I said, what? I said, are you sure? And she said, no, I'm not sure. But I don't know who, how, where else it could be. It was right here. And there's been nobody here. And uh, so we're kind of freaking out. And uh, so then we tell the bartender, you know, her wallet's missing, and we're looking for it, and the deaf guy's looking for it, and it's not there. So we leave, and we walk out the door, and uh, we're not sure what's going on. As soon as we go out the door, the deaf guy scoots around the corner, down the side street, into the alley, and he's gone. I was like, oh, damn, they got your wallet. So we're on the street corner, and we're commiserating, what, you know, how much money was in it, and, you know, should we cancel the credit cards now, or should we wait till we get home? And we're talking about, all of a sudden, here he comes, out of the alleyway. It turns out he's just gone to take a piss in the alleyway. I'm not sure why he didn't use the, the men's room. but And he comes back, and he's now he's like ready for his ride up the hill. So now we're in this weird situation. We're on the street corner. She thinks he has a wallet, but she's not sure. And we're talking, and we keep talk, turning our back to him so he can't lip read and saying, do you know you have it? And, like, and in the middle of all this, a police car pulls up by chance, two doors down. So Mari says... I'm going to go talk to the police. And I said, I'm going to wait here with him, make sure he doesn't go. So she goes down. I'm sitting here talking to the guy in the, in the corner. She's uh, uh, down here talking to the police. She tells them what's going on. And they said, well, what do you want us to do? And she said, well, I just want my wallet back. And they said, well, do you want to press charges? And she said, no, I don't want to I don't know that he has it. I can't press charges. I don't want And so they said, well, look, it, 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 you either press charges or you don't. If you press charges, then we can go search him. Otherwise... So in the end, she says, no, well, no, I'm just not, not going to do that. So she comes back and tells me this. And uh, so now we're kind of, he's getting antsy, like, what are we still on the street corner for? And we're talking, what are we going to do? And I look over, and he's got baggy sweatpants on. And I can see on one side there's something in one of the pockets. It could be his keys. It could be anything, you know? And I don't know. And it, we're kind of running out of options here. So without really thinking about it, all of a sudden I take two steps. I plunge out this thing it's her wallet and we both let out a yell and the guy lets out this weird noise and he put, like, kind of puts his head up and kind of scopes off into the night and you know never see him again we got the wallet all the money back but you know when I think about it the thing that struck me about this whole thing is it's one thing somebody's stealing from you stealing something that's bad enough but the idea of this guy stole her wallet and then waited around for us to give him a ride home <laughs> with the wallet in his pocket. And then, wor more, you know, worse than that, then when the police are there, his victim is over talking to the police while he's standing here with the wallet in his pocket, cool as a cucumber. And that takes nerve, you know? And that, that takes, like, chutzpah. That takes balls. The evil twin of courage. <laughs> Jennifer Stratton.
Hey. Ha. Okay, so <clears throat> when I was 19, I lived in Papua New Guinea for a year. Now, I went to a very alternative college, and um, so part of the program was you could live overseas, and they had different centers in different parts of the world. And I was studying agriculture, and I wanted to go to the South Pacific, but there were no centers in the South Pacific. But one of my professors had a connection in Papua New Guinea, and he told me about it, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm in. Now, I'm 19, I have no idea where Papua New Guinea is. I, have no, I don't know anything about it. So I started reading about it, and just a little you know, background, it, it's the largest island in the South Pacific, just north of Australia. And um, it had just recently gotten its independence from Australia in 1975. And I, this was in 1980 when I went over there. And they had just come into the, you know, 20, 20th century. I mean, we're talking, you know. So I'm like getting a little nervous reading, but I'm like, you know, I'm going. And so as somebody else stated, I don't know if that's courage or just pure ignorance. And, and in youthful naivete. But whatever it is, I was like, I'm, I'm going. So I arrive, I'm, I went to the Southern Highlands province, which is like in the, kind of in the middle, in the uplands, and I was in the capital, it was Mendy. So when I arrived, there was tribal fighting in the hills around me. There's, you could see the smoke and drums and the chants of the warriors. And, and they, people were telling me, don't go out alone and don't leave your laundry when you go to work because somebody's definitely going to take it. Um, all this fear-based stuff. And I was just like, what did I get myself into? Um, you know, when I, my vision of the South Pacific was the quintessential Gauguin painting with palm trees and white sand and, you know, lolling around with the coconuts and Papua New Guinea is an amazing culture, but it's very dark, mysterious, swampy, rainforest, crocodiles, cannibal, you know, hints of past cannibalism and so I, I'm, you know, whatever, I'm there. So, and also... My job that they wanted me to do was way over my head. I was 19, I didn't speak the language, and I just, I got, I wriggled out of that because I couldn't do it. And I met this very nice woman who worked in the hospital there with um, malnourished um, patients, you know, helping them with their dietary needs, but also doing research and, you know, nutritional needs of the area. Now, a hospital in the southern highlands of Papua New Guinea is very different than any hospital that we see in this country. It's, you know, it's basically a cement block with, you know, open rooms, tuberculosis, leprosy, people falling into their cook fires, burn victims, you know, just things we don't normally see. So one day I'm sitting in the break room just, and this guy walks in, doctor, and he's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm just nothing, I'm just taking a break. He's like, I really need your help. Okay, sure. He's a uh, a re he was from Canada, but he had lived there for a while, and he was a surgeon. So as we're walking down the hallway, I surmise from the situation that he wants me to help him with his surgery. Now, I was like, I am just here by a fluke. Like, I have <laughs> no medical experience whatsoever, and he's like, don't worry about it. So we go into a room, and our first, the first patient that comes in is a man with a spear sticking out of his <laughs> chest. Obviously from the tribal fighting in the hill. So he's like, all right, just pass me. You know, he's like, pass me this. I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, don't worry about that thing. Pass me that. You know, this is not Grey's Anatomy. Like, I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't even remember scrubbing on. But, so 
So he pulls the spear out, you know, sends that person on its way. The next victim, victim, the next person that came in was an older woman who was suffering from something called pig bell. Now, pig bell is something that people in developing nations have suffered from. They have the vaccination now. But um, when people that don't eat a lot of protein, they're a little bit undernourished, um, you know, lack of hygiene, et cetera, et cetera. But they tend to have these epic feasts and um, they gorge on, you know, meats and then they're, they can't handle digesting it. And now in Papua New Guinea, pigs are their wealth. People have pigs, you know, you get married, how many pigs are you gonna give me for my daughter? And, you know, like you, you know, you burn somebody's hut down by mistake and you owe me a million pigs and it's pigs. So when they have feasts, they, they kill pigs and they eat pigs. So. Um, this woman was, uh, so anyway, so she's on the table and he proceeds to cut her open and I'm like, thought I was gonna lose it, but I didn't. I was like, I can't even believe I'm in Papua New Guinea and I'm in a room and he's slicing this woman open and he's pulling out all the intestines and I'm like, sorry, but it was amazing. And I was like, <laughs> I can't even believe how much we hold inside of our, so anyway, he proceeds to fix her up and help her and, and puts it all back in and stitches her up. And he's like, she's going to have a scar. And I was like, <laughs> but he's like, that's the best we can do. Okay, so then the third is a, is a young boy and he has club foot, which is misshapen due to, you know, different reasons. And he had to like cut the Achilles tendon and, and you know, reshape it anyway and, I, and he's like passed me the you know the whole thing so after all that was over I was like okay what next you know I'm like I'm in my element I'm a bit of a you know excitement junkie I'm like this is awesome maybe I'm going to be a doctor um you know and anyway he's like that's it so the moral of the story is what I, what I say to myself now, my tagline in life is, if I can make it in Papua New Guinea, I can make it anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, next storyteller, uh, Mary, or is it Ronan? <laughs> Mary. I'm at Penn Station getting on the train to go upstate New York to college and waiting for the all-clear signal. But my all-clear signal doesn't happen. My period never comes. I'm 19 years old. It's 1960, and I go to a little college in upstate New York called Elmira, proper little woman's college. Pregnancy is not an option. I spent the summer working with an enchanting guitarist and newspaper salesman named Charlie. He's been separated from his wife and kid for two years, and he makes $17 a week. Marriage is not an option. Two weeks later, I'm taking the train back down to New York, and I take the subway down to Long Beach, where a doctor confirms that I'm pregnant. He offers me an abortion. I decline. I can still remember a light snow falling around the train, even through the tunnel on the subway back to New York. My whole reality was falling down around me. I couldn't even take it in. It was, it was, I was immobilized. I guess you could say I was in shock. But all through that would come these little sparkling streaks of wonder, maybe even joy. I had a baby inside me. 
I couldn't tell my mother. My mother was a piece of work. I was in a heap of trouble. <laughs> and I sure couldn't tell her now because she would have wanted me to have an abortion. And she was a very powerful woman. She might have been able to make me do that. And I wasn't going to do that to my baby. I wanted her. I really wanted to keep her. But this was 1960. And a woman with a baby or a child couldn't get a job in 1960. So someone in my position who wanted to keep her baby had no choice but to board that child out in the suburbs and take the subway out on Saturdays and Sundays to see that child. And I wasn't going to do that to my child. So there wasn't any choice left but to be as good a mother to her as I could till she was born and then let her go and let someone else who could be a good parent to her take her and raise her. So I made a list. I changed my major from government to Russian because it was the only, only major that had single semester courses so I wouldn't lose my credits when I left school at the end of the semester. I found a doctor, an obstetrician, and got started prenatal care. I found a home for unwed mothers, and I found an adoption agency that was very careful about the parents they allowed to adopt their children. The only thing I couldn't figure out was, how do you manage to get to the end of a semester four and a half months pregnant in a proper little woman's college and not get expelled? So there was a psychologist on staff, and I went to see him, and I told him what I'd done and what I had handled, and I told him what I couldn't handle. And he said, I think we got this. He said, I know the dean, and this is what you need to do. You need to go out and you need to eat and eat and eat. Eat everything you can get your hands on. He said, I want you to gain 20 pounds in the next month if you can, and then I want you to hold back. And I want you to lie low and keep a low profile, and I want you to keep your grades up. And when you come back from school after Thanksgiving, I want you to go to the dean. And I want you to tell your parents they're having this terrible divorce, and they're at each other's throats, and the whole family is falling apart, and so are you. And I want you to tell her that somehow you've managed to keep your grades up, but you don't know how. You've been so depressed, and you've just been eating compulsively, and you just can't stop and you've gained 20 pounds and he said and I want you to tell her that you don't think you can make it through the next semester but you, but you would like to come back you love Elmira and you hope that if you went home you could get a leave of absence and you came could come back and they'd let you back and he said and I want you to cry he said, she's very sensitive to students who cry. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't hurt to talk to her about your period. He said, people are very uncomfortable when they have to deal with the fact that women bleed. So I thanked him. I said, boy, you are a psychologist. And I went out there and I did everything he said. I, took, I gained 19 pounds, kept my grades up, kept a low profile, and I went home for Thanksgiving to my mother. And I said, I'm pregnant. And she said, you're getting an abortion. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm three and a half months pregnant. No one will give it to me anyway. And I'm not going to do that to my baby. But I said, but you don't have to worry. I've got it figured out. I've got a place to stay. And I've got a good home set up for her. She'll have a good life. And don't worry. You don't have to help me. And my mother drew herself up to her full height. And she looked at me. And she said, you think you have this all figured out, don't you? You think you're just going to drop that baby off at some pit stop and go back to college like nothing ever happened, don't you? You don't think you have any responsibility at all. You think everything's going to be just the same as it ever was, don't you? Well, I've got news for you. 
you don't give people away. And as my mother stood there excoriating me, it slowly started to dawn on me, I was going to be able to keep my baby. And she was going to help me. And my mother picked up her purse and she put it over her shoulder and she started out the door and she looked back at me and she said, you clean the oven, I'm gonna go talk to the priest. Carol Miller, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up. I was shy when I was four. I was Tarzan when I was five. Johnny Weissmiller played in the films of Tarzan in the Jungle. He was lean and strong, and he was an Olympic swimmer, and he never used a stuntman for his parts. He wore a animal skin around his, as in shorts, and had a knife and scabbard, and that was it. He went off to the jungle, he'd do his Tarzan yell, he'd call the animals, he protected the whole jungle, and he saved them from the, often the white men coming in and stealing the treasures of the jungle. Ardmore, Oklahoma. The Williamses had a backyard jungle. It even had vines, trees and bushes. And I could, I, it was, they never mowed their yard. Perfect. I dug through my mother's hope chest and found a leopard skin uh, design on a cloth and cut it and put it over my shorts. I found a five-inch hunting knife in the garage with a scabbard and put it on my waist and off I went with my three cats, three generations of cats, the oldest being called Tiger. <laughs> Approaching the jungle was a fence with a hole in it and as I stepped through it it felt to me like I was going through a portal and that I was leaving time and place. I was Tarzan. This was my jungle. I would run and climb trees and I made spears with the knife and had a hundred imaginary adventures in my mind. Once I fell asleep in the backyard, in the jungle. And I woke realizing that I would remember this forever because it was the first time I had ever fallen asleep alone in the jungle. My jungle days, my Tarzan days got cut short because my brother who I adored said, you know, I, it's embarrassing to me to have my little sister running around half naked in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> so I traded my Tarzan jungle for the jungle gym at school, age 45. I have a dream of returning a bird to the middle of the jungle to its home. This jungle is very primitive, 
rivers. There's wood-carved canoes, a man with a spear getting ready to spear an alligator. I wake. I want to go there. I want to go to a jungle like that. I go to Berkeley Adventure Travels, and they tell me, and I tell them my dilemma, and they said, you need to go to Irian Jaya, which is one half of New Guinea. <laughs> it's a, the more primitive side, and the only way you can get in there is partly by wood-carved canoes, the other by uh, small five-seater planes that are owned by the missionaries. I go. It's nighttime. They're drumming off about a half a mile to three quarters of a mile away. And it's dark. I want to go there. And I want to go alone. I go out with my flashlight. There's no path because there are migratory tribes and they they travel by river, and they're constantly making new places. So I'm hearing the drums. I go out with my flashlight, and the jungle is so dark that it eats up the light. A woman in the group hands me her miner's hat, which, you know, have those big lights on them. And so I go out alone. I again feel like I'm stepping through a portal, leaving time and space. But that's another story. Yeah. Jeremy. Thanks. A little. Doesn't usually happen that I need to set things to be taller for me, but thanks. Um, this is a story about a kind of courage that's not the catastrophe, imminent danger kind of courage. This is, you see it coming from a long, long, long way away. I'm going to need to be strong. And it was something that we saw coming from the birth of our children. My wife and I had twins five years ago. When you have twins, tends to be more problems than your average kids, right? They were eight pounds combined when they were born, so very small kids. You wind up starting with some feeding issues, and everything was okay. It wasn't an emergency. This wasn't the courageous part. This was just what we did. This was who we were. We had twins. We had things we had to get through to help them, to get our, get our lives going. Um, but there was one thing that wasn't really part of the plan, right? As part of the, the, the first examinations went, the doctors listened to my son Nate's heart, and they said, huh, hey, do you mind if I call my resident over to listen to this? And we said, no, is something wrong? No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. And this happened for every examination that Nate had for the next three, four years. Every time a new doctor listened to his heart, they said, oh, do you mind if I call somebody over to listen to his heart? He had what's called a VSD. It's a, it's, a, it's a heart defect, a ventral septal defect, that means there's a small hole in your heart. It's a heart murmur. This is not, in and of itself, a very dangerous thing, but it's something to watch. Um, so even as we went through the whole, the, the whole beginning of their lives, and um, 
they were investigated. We, we waited. They listened to the VSD. They wanted to see how it went. Maybe it'll heal on its own. The years go by. We had a couple of other surgeries to, to help them get through their lives. We're going to keep listening to this VSD. Well, it's still there. It didn't heal itself. Let's keep listening. Another year goes by, and finally, the doctor says, you know what? His heart's getting a little bit enlarged. We're going to have to have surgery sometime in the next year or so. So now we're facing open-heart surgery on a very small child. And this is something that, as a parent, is going to take courage. This is not immediate danger courage. This is, we're going to schedule your courage for six months from now. It's a little weird. But we knew it was coming. We were able to do all the research. We're in Boston, so if you have to have major surgery on a child, and you can work with a team from Children's Hospital and a team from Mass General Hospital, you have the best people in the world. To, to handle this. So, okay, I, we need to be courageous. We need to deal with this, but we have all these great people helping us. So we scheduled the surgery. Um, it comes up uh, for March, March of this past year, actually. And this is not simple, this is not little surgery. This is full open heart, bypass machine, full on heart surgery on a child who weighs like 32 pounds. Um, which is a little terrifying. We schedule it. We're, we're ready, right? We have, we have prepared ourselves for this for a while. Um, it's just what we have to do. I don't see myself, I don't see my wife as being particularly courageous about this because we knew it was coming. We're ready to do it. He's ready to do it. He knows. We've talked to Nate about it. Um, and then one of the things that drove it home to me that there was some, some courage that we needed to have was I sent out an email to my work to say, hey, I'm gonna be out, of, I'm gonna be out for, for a month or so as my son recovers from this heart surgery. And I got all these responses that were like, oh my God, I can't believe it, are you okay? We're with you, we'll help you, stay strong. And in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm strong, I'm cool. We, we've been dealing with this, we've been ready for this for a while. But there was all this, this, this support that was there and I sort of realized, oh, you know, I guess I've been slowly building up to this for, for a long, long time. Um, we finally get there, and the, the day of the surgery, we, we go into the hospital, and Cindy and I are, are, are trying our best to be like the brave faces and not, not let Nate get, get scared, and that was going pretty well and until he had the first blood draw, which was, for him, the most traumatic part of the whole story, and, you know, he broke down, and Cindy and I are like, we're breaking down too now, and that got a little rough, and then they had me... Um, well, before the surgery, they gave him a little, a little pick-me-up, a little calm-me-down, actually, that later they told me was actually, um, uh, what's it called, Special K, ketamine? ketamine? This is, you're giving this to a five-year-old, but okay, whatever. Um, so that sort of relaxed him before he went into the surgery. Um, but they had me go with him into the operating room and pick him up off the gurney and put him on the operating table, which... I don't know if you've been in an operating room lately, but it looks like the bridge of the Enterprise and is like glaring and machines and terrifying. And as I did that, I felt something behind me and they, they put a chair right behind me as I was doing that. Because the usual thing for the dad to do at that point is pass out. <laughs> they were ready for that. And I didn't pass out, but it was a close thing. Um, so we get through that and, and, and I go out and then um, they're doing the surgery and they call you now because the doctor has a cell phone and 
okay, we've gotten through the beginning prep, si prep stages, and oh, okay, everything's going well, and okay, now he's ready to come out of surgery. And The doctor came out, and the first thing he said to us after we saw the doctor after the surgery was, everything was uneventful. And that was the best thing he could have possibly said in the world, uneventful. And it turned out that all that courage that we had ready, we, we didn't need. And it turned out that the hardest thing about all of this was the shift from terrified, anxious, we need to support you, Nate, parents, into, oh my God, Nate, don't get out of bed. You can't go running around the hospital yet. You've only been out of surgery for two days. Stay in the bed. And he wanted to go play and has made an incredible comeback and has more than enough courage for all of us. But the, the sort of, the, the build up to not needing that courage was, was very odd, but it turned out to be fantastic for everyone. So that was it. Okay, um, Jill Teitelman. Okay, maybe a slightly different kind of courage than we've had so far. Um, it's my East Village period. I'm living in the East Village uh, in the 70s. Can you step away? Thanks. Oh. <laughs> I've met the man of my dreams randomly on a trip to California. Uh, it was a split second, and I decided that this was the man that I was going to spend the rest of my life with, mostly because he was charming, he was funny, but he had the most romantic life I had ever imagined. He was um, an antiquities dealer, and he dealt in ancient Asian artifacts. So most of his life was flying from Tibet to China to... Paris to sell things at the Louvre or to Madison Avenue to go to fancy galleries there and talk about porcelains from the Mughal period of India. Um, our first day in San Francisco, we went to the De Young Museum and he explained quite a bit about a certain period of Japanese ceramics. Um, this passion went on for many years. We he lived in London. I lived, as I said, in the East Village. When I first met him, he sort of had a girlfriend. The next time we saw each other was in New York. He would always call me, and immediately I would drop everything. I never knew when he would show up. Occasionally I would get a postcard. I would wait and wait and wait, sometimes months. He would always come back. He would always turn up, and we would always have extremely romantic times. Um, but he was always either involved with somebody or about to be involved with somebody. He was married for a while. In my life, the men would come and go, but in my heart, I knew that someday he would realize that I was really the one. Um, fast forward, it's hot summer uh, in July in Manhattan. I get the call. His name was Jim. And um, I think I was actually in somebody else's bed at the time when I got the message from my roommate that, um, <clears throat> and we, I, we got together that day for a drink in the afternoon, and it was, and I decided this was my chance. He had just broken up with, he, the, the marriage was on the rocks at that point. And I decided this was the weekend I was really gonna score with this. I was gonna, this was gonna, it was gonna happen. 
So um, I planned the most amazing weekend. I, I had a car at the time. I had friends in the Hamptons. I found the most perfect romantic hotel. I packed a picnic basket with um, champagne, excellent roast chicken. Um, I got the right beach blanket. I, the towels. It, it was, it was good. The bikini. We have our first dinner on the sand, a little picnic, a little moonlight picnic. Um, the weekend goes great. My friends with the beautiful house and the pool invited us for a cocktail party. Um, and everyone was very literary and he was extremely impressed with my friends. And people were running around saying Gilles et Jules, or Jim, Gilles et Jim, instead of Jill, Jules and Jim, the famous romantic, my fam favorite French movie, by the way. My friends are saying Jim et Gilles, so it was just perfect. Uh, Sunday, we're, on the, we're riding back home. He's flying back to London the next day or somewhere else. Um, we get in the car. He was driving my car. Um, and suddenly, if you've ever had this experience, it's devastating. Everything goes from wonderful to absolutely terrible, and you don't know why, and you don't know how you know, but you feel that the air has shifted in your life, and your hopes have just vanished. You know something's wrong. The, the air changed, the atmosphere changed, his body language changed. His, he had been kind and sweet, and we danced in the moonlight, and suddenly he was rigid, he was at the wheel, he was tense, he was talking about what time he had to get to the airport the following day. At the same time that this was happening, two other things were going on. One, the traffic was starting to become extremely bad, really bad, bumper to bumper, and we're three hours from Manhattan. The second thing that happened was I had to pee. <laughs> I, I had to pee. The tension, the relationship, <laughs> I, I, it was not a good combination of experiences, and and I, 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 I was, I could tell that I was, I had to be, I just could tell I had to be, not rile him up in any way, but we, the car was practically stopped, and there were actually, there was a man ahead, and he actually got out of his car for a second to have a smoke, and so I said, I said, Jim, I, I am just going to run out of the car. I'm going to go over there. See that bush over there? I'm going to pee. Really, I have to do it. I, I, I'm going to explode. And then you'll pick me up. I'll find the car. I, I know I can do this. He looked at me with his eyes as if I had just turned into the most crazed, monstrous, insane person in the entire... This had been my lover mere hours ago. He suddenly looked at me as if he never, ever wanted to see me again. So that wasn't going to work. He wasn't going to let me do it. And I, I'm, I didn't want to lose the relationship. I didn't want to die. I didn't know what. I didn't want to explode. Somehow, I, 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 we, got, we get to the city. I probably have to wrap this up. We get to New York. I drop him off. It's my car. So he gets out at the apartment. He takes the luggage. And I say, I'm just going to go park the car. I... I I drive around looking for a spot. I suddenly look up and there's a police car. I'm going down a one-way street the wrong way. And a police car, there are two guys in the police car looking at me like I'm crazy. There was also a, 
a joint on the dashboard. <laughs> and the courage was, there are two pieces of courage in this story. The first is, the first was, I got my, somehow I said, I'm going to, I, I, this is going to really end the relationship if he has to bail me out of jail. This is not going to be good. So I have to make this, I have to not get arrested. So I got very, very strong in myself, and I willed myself, and I got back all of my courage, and I forgot about having to, I forgot about the peeing. And I, I got out of the car, and I, I, I said, officers, I'm so terribly, ter I got very Connecticut. I grew up there, and I got very, and I just, I, I, I just, and suddenly these guys were fighting over who was going to help me find a parking space somehow. It just, so when I got back to the apartment, I, he left the next morning. That's the end of the story. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us live at facebook.com slash mosquito story slam and listen to our podcast on soundcloud.com slash mosquito story slam tell your friends take a chance and bite it live <laughs> 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 <laughs>